chance. Check, check. Oh, thanks, Keith. We're on. Sorry, guys. Good afternoon. It's great to see you, Hope Church. So many things to get rid of here. Thanks, Papa. Do I need that? Nope. Okay, great. Um, it is wonderful to be with you. I feel privileged, honored. Uh, happy that I get to share on the last Sunday of 2020 to spend this last Sunday of a very unique year with you. Um, it's, for many, been a challenging year. You've heard that a lot. Many people have said that. Uh, I feel slightly nervous because I have a challenging word. I believe it's from the Lord, um, but I want you to know, as I start, I love you. I really do, and um, I love the church in general, um, globally, and uh, I believe that God has uh, mighty, mighty things for us. I also believe that he is going to take us through um, <laughs> purification. I believe we've been in purification uh, for some months, and um My heart and my intention this afternoon is to encourage you, uh, but I have a prayer for myself, um, and it is that, God, I do not want to be a Christianette who preaches sermonettes to tickle the ears of an offended generation. Let it not be so. And... um, So my prayer is, God, give me, make me a real preacher, (laughs) a real preacher that um, speaks the truth marinated in love, regardless of what you think at the end. (laughs) So Lord, I pray for that. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this Hope family. And I ask, Holy Spirit, lean on you today. And I just say, Lord, would you... um, Encourage the hearts of each one of us that we would know, God, that you are in control, but that we would have um, humble hearts to hear from you, not, not from me. Let anything of me fall to the ground. Holy Spirit, um, you have your way. We love you. We honor you. We fear you. No one else. Jesus' name, amen. Um, I have a lot to get through, so I'm going to jump in, and uh, uh, but really quick, I'm going to do a little update. Um, my my wife is eight months pregnant. We are working on number four, baby number four, due early February. So that's happening. Um, we moved very unexpectedly the middle of this year to Denver, Colorado, where we are helping friends who have started a simple church planting community that is um, planning discipleship groups and and house churches uh, in the city uh, and surroundings of Denver. Um, So we are still fully a part of Youth with a Mission. We are still long-term based in Kona, Hawaii, 
and we have every intention of moving back there. Our kids are enrolled in school in Hawaii in August of 2021. So this is a time, an invitation, we believe. I don't have time to get into it, but an invitation, we believe, brought very specifically from the Lord um, to learn, to serve in this house church, but also to, to learn um, a place where God is shifting some level of influence to a new model of what church uh, will look like in the future. Um, now, of course, that's, I'm not, I'm just it's always been there. We've all heard of simple churches. There's all these people that are doing simple church. Um, I, I think there is a growing influence in that category, and we felt this was an invitation for us to learn how it operates. So that's uh, a big part of what we're doing in Denver, Colorado. The Lord spoke to me uh, beginning of June. We had just come out of nine weeks of um, a stay-at-home lockdown in Hawaii. It was quite intense, quite unexpected. I'm a little bit of a rebel, and so I didn't like it. Um, my wife did much better than I did. I found all kinds of things inside of me that were less Christian than I would like. Um, but I, uh, we went through that, and the very first thing we did when we came out of lockdown is we had a, a staff conference together on the YWAM Kona base, and a word was brought to us the very first morning uh, about um, Daniel, book of Daniel. Um, it's a book some of the leadership of the church have been going through the num- last number of weeks or even months, I believe. And, um, but in the book of Daniel, uh, you know, Daniel was a young man in Jerusalem, taken into exile. Uh, he, he, was, um, he would have been very likely a young boy at that time. Now, he would have literally heard, potentially in person, probably very likely face-to-face heard, the prophet Jeremiah speaking very specifically that the Babylonians are going to come take you away. There will be 70 years of exile, and then the exiles will be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and worship again. Wildly enough, Daniel chapter 6 is 70 years later. Daniel recognizes, hey, that prophet Jeremiah said this. This is the year of fulfillment. This is the year of great promise. That's what this year is. And he prays in Daniel chapter 6, an epic prayer. God, the time is fulfilled. Send them back. Well, if you look at history, you will see that it is that same year that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. He was not a young boy. He's likely in his 80s. Thrown into the lion's den. This is not a maybe he'll get out. It's just dead. It's like the fiery furnace. Like, you die. You don't go in the lion's den overnight and maybe you come out. Like, it was a miracle. The bottom line is this. The year of great promise became the year of great trial. 2020 is the year of 2020 vision. We'll see what God's doing. The year of stadium evangelism re-inaugurated. The year the Pope declared it the year of the Bible. The largest and most influential missions organizations around the Western world, not just YWAM, but many of them have come together to say that we will get the Bible translation started in every, started in every language on earth, every human spoken language by the end, by Christmas 2020. 2020 came around and it was like this huge two by four, right in the head. And as we were, like, trying to recover, it was like two or three more two-by-fours came. Political two-by-fours. Social issue two-by-fours. And we were just like, 
laying on the ground trying not to die. It's kind of what it felt like. And I want to say to you this. It is the year of great promise. And after the lion's den, not only did Cyrus send the exiles back, he paid for them to go back. Paid the expenses for them to go back and to help rebuild the temple so they could worship again. And I, I, I want you guys to know, so you, I believe it is the year of great promise. It doesn't mean you don't have to go through the lion's den. And I don't care who you are or how many times a day you pray, it's not comfortable when you're about to be thrown in the lion's den. Daniel wasn't just like, okay, see you tomorrow. Jesus wasn't like, okay, see you tomorrow when the cross was upon him. I, I believe that um, I believe that comfortable Christianity is on a head-on collision course with the man Jesus. and It may not survive. The title of my message today is Revival, Reformation, and Sacrificial Love. And... Um, I'm going to start by way of reminder of a word. I apologize in advance. I believe the last time I told you this word was maybe the third time I, I told, told this body. And um, I believe at that time I said, I, I plan to not bring this up to you again. And here I am. But on New Year's of 2019, two years ago, um, uh, Pastor Q asked me if I would share... Um, uh, a word for this for the church, and I felt that God gave me something bigger. It was for this church, but it was much bigger. It was for more, and I've shared it many places now. Um, but um, so I want to I want to uh, re- remind you of that word. Um, this came two years ago, uh, just before New Year's uh, 2019. I, I felt the Lord say this: always be prepared. It was in preparation for sharing to to you guys to hope. Um, Always be prepared for his purposes through disciplined prayer, purity, and fighting to stay encouraged. Disciplined prayer, purity, and fighting to stay encouraged. The scripture that I felt was 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And it is in the heart of that scripture that I come to you guys today. Um, God willing, I hope to speak to you as um, like a, in like a sons of Issachar manner. The sons of Issachar are referred to in Second Chronicles. Um, it said there were these sons of Issachar who knew the signs of the time and how the people of God were to respond. By no means do I claim to know all the signs of our time today, but I do believe that God has spoken to me something this year and um, that it is for our benefit, and so I I submit it to you guys as a body. It's about um, spiritual warfare, sacrificial love, 
and how those things relate to the coming revival and reformation that is upon us as a body of Christ. Okay? So the word, be always prepared through discipline, prayer, purity, and fighting to stay encouraged. I believe this year, this was 2019, we're going to see a door beginning to open for the gospel like has never been seen in our lifetime. It will continue to open more and more through the first half of the 2020s, and it will be accompanied by a historic world events, really exciting things and probably some really scary things. But they will shape the course of this century. I believe our children and their children will look at the last quarter of the first quarter of this century, or the five years that we're in, in the window of right now, 19 to 25, those, those years. And it will be easy for our children and their children to see that these years set in action the many unfolding events of the 21st century. And I believe this is the year, this was a couple years ago, we're in the midst of it, um, this is the year that we go from seeing the light in the crack of the door to seeing the door truly begin to open. So what are we to do? Be always prepared for his purposes through disciplined prayer, purity, and fighting to stay encouraged. I want you to know, I believe we are in a time of purification as the Church of the West. I don't know about much of the rest of the world because I haven't been going there this last year. This is the least travel I've done in the last 15 years. This year. (laughs) But I am confident that in the West, there is a deep purification happening within the Church. Remain prayerful and fight to stay encouraged, friends. We are going to find out who our real friends are. I I do also want you guys to know that you are not the norm as a church body. You should know that if, if you don't I have the luxury of seeing a lot of church bodies in this country and in many countries. You are not the norm. Okay? In this nation, you are not the norm. Um, mostly, this church is an immigrant or second-generation American church. And I have seen firsthand some of, been able to see some of the challenges that that, that presents. But I also know that there are some benefits And one of those benefits is that in many ways you are more dependent on God and on one another um, than many other churches that I see. And because of that, um, there is a strength in you. It is not prophetic of me to say to you, churches around this country are closing their doors forever. Now, I know that because I have friends helping churches go through bankruptcy in Texas. It's happening in California, in New York, all over the country. Because the lukewarm that have come for a service provided to them have no reason to stay. And they're leaving by the droves. And honestly, their money's leaving with them. And churches are not surviving. Some statistics are saying that they think 
that in 2020, there will be, it will be, they're projecting that it will be a 25, some statistics, 25 to 30 percent drop off of attendance within the Church of the United States forever. Meaning this, we look and we're like, okay, it's COVID, so the building's mostly empty. That's true. But when COVID is done, and it will be done, this is not the first time humanity's faced a pandemic. It will be done. When it is done, one quarter to one third of church attenders will no longer be here. Nationally. If that's true, then in one year, the church lost between a quarter and a third of its people. One year. Fear not and do not be discouraged. This is not a destruction of the church. It's a purification. It's a purification. I believe that. I want you to remember this. Pure means without mixture. It's about one thing. It's clean and uncontaminated from any other substance or desire. People's mixed motives and desires for things other than Jesus are being exposed in the church around the West. In other words, the lukewarm are being removed, or more accurately, freely leaving. It might look like the church is shrinking in the coming, coming years, but I believe we'll see that it is actually a purification, and it will leave a purer, more potent, and more powerful church. Make no mistake, you guys. God is on the move. He is on the move. Since the time of John the Baptist till today, he has been forcefully advancing his kingdom. And COVID has not stopped that. I promise. I promise. <laughs> Amen. We, 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 you guys, I, I actually believe that we're standing on the edge of days that we've never seen before. We've never seen before in the history of the church age. But it won't come without also hardship. I believe we're going to see powerful, even unexpected moves of God in the next five years. And it, there are going to be glorious pockets of revival. Those like really exciting things I was talking about, we've, we've gotten the scary things. <laughs> I believe those exciting, those really exciting things, they won't delay. But this is where we're going to jump in. If you read any of the great revivalists, that's from the New Testament revivalists like Paul the Apostle, all the way to our modern heroes like John Wesley of the First Great Awakening and Charles Finney of the Second Great Awakening, you'll find a common understanding they all seemed to share. And, and it went something like this. 
Revival must lead to reformation or transformation of our cities and nations. The kingdoms of this world, if you will, um, being transformed to resemble the kingdom of our God. I'm going to say it one more time. Revival must lead to reformation or transformation of our cities and nations. So that the kingdoms of our world become the kingdom of our God. If revival doesn't lead to reformation and transformation, then these cities and nations, these revivals will end before these cities and nations. They will end prematurely before they're able to transform in all categories of, of society, of life. I want to talk to you guys. Um, Keith, can you help me with the... I've, I've got enough to go through without... Do you need me to do this? Or, okay, first one, let's do... I want to talk to you guys about... Um, uh, you can go to the, uh, the list. I want to talk to you guys. There we go. The five um, major shapers of Western Christianity. I want you to understand this. This is such broad stroke, it's laughable, okay? So, um, uh, and I want you to know as well that if there were any historians in here, for me to go from the New Testament to the Protestant Reformation of 1517... They'd be like, <laughs> what happened to the other 1,400 years? I, I understand that. I'm trying to make a very specific point today, and I don't have time for anything else, okay? So um, please, please bear with me. Um, the first uh, major shaper of what we know Western Christianity to look like uh, is the New Testament. That would be a shaper of any true Christianity global, but of the Western Christianity as well. Um, And in the New Testament, you see things like a revival so catastrophic, so wonderful, so transformative, so reformative of society around it, that Paul, if you flip to, if you pull up on the screen Acts 20, verse 31, I know I've got you all backwards, Keith, you're a legend. 20, verse 31, it says this, I'm just going to read off the screen for time's sake. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Okay, Paul is talking to the Ephesian leaders, the leaders of the church of Ephesus. And it says here, how long was he with them? Three years, thank you, someone's awake. Um, Three years he was with them. That's a decent chunk of time, but if you look at our lives, it's also very short. If you're talking about a major city. Ephesus is one of the major cities of modern Rome at that time, or ancient Rome, however you want to refer to it, okay? Major influential port cities of its time, okay? Go back to Acts 19. Um, Acts 19, you see uh, an account of the revival that took place in Ephesus. Look at this. This is a guy, an idol maker, his name is Demetrius, and this is what he says. Um, They start a riot because Christianity in three years has become so influential that this idol maker is saying this. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours, idol making, he's saying this right, he's not stupid. He's, He's right, he's foreseeing what's happening in his city. There's a danger that this trade of ours may be come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, Artemis is the god of love and fertility and this horrendous 
place of sexual idolatry. It was also one of the ancient wonders of the world. No small thing. It says here, she whom all Asia and the world worship. But this is what he says. That our trade may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. Talk about revival. This is wild, transformative revival. But I want you to know this. This is, this is where we're going to jump in, guys. This kind of revival was sweeping across the Roman world at that time. It's written about all over the New Testament in many different cities. But there were serious hindrances and warfare around the reformation and transformation of these cities. And I'm going to give you an example through these five things that I believe will strike very close to home this year. And I want you to know it is only one example of a place of transformation that has to do with spiritual warfare, but it could be applied to many, many things that hurt the heart of God. Okay? Just so you know that. I'm just using one example, but it's an important example. It's an example that is very real to us right now. One of the hindrances we see in the New Testament to the reformation or transformation of these cities and is addressed over and over again in Scripture, is the division, hostility, and prejudice of people toward other people because they are very simply different. Whether it is race, or color, or culture, or gender, or social political differences, it is not a new thing to our generation. It's been around a long time. It was addressed in the New Testament, It has very old and deep roots in humanity. Let me give you guys a very, very quick little thing here. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. It's only three, right, Adam and Eve with the fruit. Genesis chapter 3. It is only three chapters later that God destroys the entire world, save for one family. Why? He says this, our wicked people, our wickedness was so great And the intention and thoughts of our hearts were only evil continually. That God, it says in Scripture, God was sad. He had made humanity. I can't even imagine. Such a great debate right now and throughout history in many Uh, academic circles around this topic. Are we as humanity progressing morally? Are we becoming better throughout history? Or are we simply cycling around and around in perpetual evil? I want to tell you this. We are progressing. And it's not because we're smart or even because we're learning from the past. It is thanks be to God who sent Jesus who transforms people. Us, me, you, from the inside out into the image of Christ, from glory to ever-increasing glory. We are progressing, 
And yet that is not an excuse to put our heads in the sand and not look at areas that still need transformation. The church must lead the way in this. The world doesn't have the answers. Their answers are pitiful. They're not going to work. Because you can't find them in the world. We'll only find them in Jesus. You go just five chapters later to Genesis 11. And you get this very interesting story, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, um, you find that the hearts of people are still consumed with evil and selfishness. God goes down and sees what they've done. People think they're doing a great thing. God knows they're doing a wicked thing. And in this unique instance, you have the languages of the earth created. He confuses their language, and in doing that, divides people. People are become divided. That's what, that's what happens. You jump to the next, cha- the next book of the Bible, Exodus, chapter 32, and you see Moses coming down the mountain with two stone tablets, the law. The first two things written on the law are this. Have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make idols. Moses literally walks down the mountain to find the people of God have created an idol and are worshiping it as God. He literally is like, number one and two, literally we've had the law like ten seconds. Right? He smashes them. This is what happens though. Ultimately, this is what happens. Three about 3,000 people died. The moment the law comes on the scene, 3,000 die. All of a sudden, there's a standard. Don't make idols. Don't have any other gods. That's exactly what they're doing, and it leads to death. Look at this. Jump forward to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. You get another weird scenario. Almost equally as weird as the Tower of Babel. Here's what happens. The people, the, the followers of Jesus are in an upper room. Holy Spirit comes. Comes on them. And what do they do? All of them. Start speaking another language. Tongues of fire over them. And then. Right? And, and the people outside, there's great confusion. Because the people outside are like, they must be drunk. They sound crazy. But they're also like, it's really weird though. Because. I hear the works of God being spoken about in my language. (laughs) Do do you see see what's happening? So here's the thing. Old covenant, old covenant, there's division, hostility, death reigns. The second new covenant happens. Acts chapter 2. Jesus has come, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. And the moment, 10 seconds after Holy Spirit tells, and what do the people say? They literally look and they go, this is, um, this is crazy because I hear the, the works of God being proclaimed in the languages of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. That's big. And then Peter kicks the door down, runs out, because they're hiding in this upper room. He's not scared anymore. Runs out to all the people, preaches this wild, 
offensive message that says this. Jesus Christ was attested to all of us, you fools, that you missed it. To be the Christ through signs and wonders and the prophets and all this stuff. And you murdered him. And you know what? They're not offended. It says they're cut to the heart. And you know what happened? About 3,000 were given new life, got saved. I hope you're seeing the correlation. Old covenant. Languages and people divided. Evil continually and death reigns. New covenant. People united. Transformation from the inside out. And life reigns. This is the time we're living in. Jesus gave us the keys with what he did. But it is still our job to engage with the spiritual warfare that transformation is. And it is a spiritual war. And it's really affecting people's lives. We do not fight against flesh and blood. But against demons and principalities and this present darkness. We see the church of the New Testament engage in this spiritual warfare intensely. For instance, throughout the New Testament, the division of people is strong between Jew and Gentile, male and female, upper class and lower class, Roman citizen and not Roman citizen. The division between people was strong and it has old and deep Roots in humanity. And yet, the greatest example that we have of what God's desire is, is Jesus. And the last recorded prayer of Jesus before being on the cross, John 17, the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, over and over and over again, Father, make them one. Even as you are in me and I and you are oneness, may they be perfectly one. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me, Jesus, and that you love them, Father, even as you've loved me. A united church will show a broken world a God that loves them. It's a mystery, but it's real. Guys, I don't know if I've ever seen, I know I'm not that old, I don't know if I've ever seen the Western church as divided as I see it right now. And to be honest with you, I've been, you know, I'm from California, my wife and I are living in Hawaii, we just moved to Denver for a time, I just came from Texas and Oklahoma a couple weeks ago, like, the closer I get to Washington, D.C., the more divided I'm finding it. Can't talk about anything in real life. New Testament talks about spiritual warfare of this nature over and over again. It was such a stronghold that Peter himself, the rock of the church, amazing man of God who walked with Jesus for three years in the flesh, saw him 
in, at the Mount of Transfiguration, saw him after his resurrection multiple times, watched him ascend into heaven. That Peter is still personally wrestling with this area of transformation in his own life that he has to be called out by Paul publicly for his discrimination against the Gentiles. Literally eats with them. And when the other Jews come, he's like, "Uh, I wasn't eating with them. Why? Because it's division... It's not just a fleshly thing. It is a spiritual warfare. Again, I just want to say I'm using an example because I think it's very pointed right now. In our nation. And having understanding that we as a church are to engage in spiritual warfare that is very real and has very real outcomes in people's lives, in cities' lives, in nations' lives. We don't have the luxury to not engage. We have to. You know, I, I use this example, but I do want you to know, if you do the research, you spend the time on your face before God, you'll find it in every major, every major deal, from the killing of our children throughout the generations, to the rising implementation and destruction of leaders and nations, you will find the spiritual warfare behind it. Why? Because beneath what we see with our eyes, there is a spiritual reality, there is a spiritual battle that is being fought now. And I believe, I believe, I believe that God wants to Show his church how to engage in a meaningful, transformative manner that doesn't further divide. It brings us together like Jesus' prayer. Let me, let me carry this on. A second thing, and again, I know it's such broad strokes. For me to jump from 100 AD to 1500 AD is laughable. If you're a historian, you could laugh, and then I'll keep moving. Um, yet, 1517. Just over 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther brings his 95 theses to a door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nails it on there. Historians agree that that single action was the start of the Protestant Reformation. Do you know what else was happening at the exact same time? The transatlantic slave trade was getting going had started in the 15th century, but really picked up momentum in the beginning of the 16th century. Part of the reason for the increase is the discovery of the Americas and the fact that so much work needed to get done, both in the new colonies as well as in Europe, uh, who is now spreading its European population over two continents. 
This is interesting. The first transatlantic slave ship that went directly from Africa to America was in August of 1518, less than a year after the Protestant Reformation started. The Protestant Reformation in many ways led the West into its place of influence and authority, bringing people of different languages, cultures, creeds across the European continent, bringing them together in a spectacular way. Uh, not perfect. World War I and II is a great example of not perfect. <laughs> but in a spectacular way. And yet at the very same time, we are creating egregious, hostile, traumatic division with a whole nother continent. Not coincidence. It's, it's warfare. Can we, just, can we please see that? God, look at any moment when God wants to work hugely and declares a leader will be born, they start murdering the babies. Coincidence. Wrong. They did it in Moses' generation. They did it in Jesus' generation. We're doing it in our generation. It is the work of Satan, demons, and sin to divide and destroy people. It is the work of Jesus, the cross, and the Holy Spirit to bring people together, to heal, restore, reform, and bring life. Being on Jesus' side in this will not always be comfortable, and it will likely be controversial and even distasteful to those around us. Comfortable Christianity, guys, I fear... I'm not wishing for it, but I fear it's on a collision course that's going to see its destruction. And when it goes, only the strong are going to remain. Because you'll still be able to find comfortable. It just won't be with Jesus. And that's dangerous, you guys. There's so much more to say on this. But I've got to jump to number three. We can put it up there. Number three um, is First Great Awakening. It's prominent leaders, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley. Um, truly, if you do the research, transformed Europe, transformed the Americas in a time when the moral stance of our many nations, but co- these two continents, were it was just at a low, low, low. And there is so much to say, and that's just such broad strokes. I just want to read you the last letter that John Wesley, who wrote a lot of things, the last letter he ever wrote in his life. It was written six days before his death. He addressed it to a man named William Wilberforce. I don't know who he is. He's a great British abolitionist. This is just a little expert excerpt from the beginning of his letter to Wilberforce. Dear Sir, Unless the divine power has raised you up to be an Athenius against the world. Athenius was the 20th bishop of, uh, the, uh, 20th bishop of the Church of Alexandria. Um, and he was a chief defender of the Trinity in a time when it seemed the whole world was attacking the Trinity. Right. So Wesley's saying, listen, um, Wilberforce, unless God has raised you up as an Athenius against the world. Right. Um, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing this execrable villainy, 
which is the scandal of religion of England and of the human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Do you think do you think that issues of our day, do you think that social issues are not in the heart of God that the church is to talk of spiritual things and keep its nose out of society is incorrect. Some people would say that Wesley felt slavery was the unfinished business of the revival he was uh, blessed and held responsible um, to lead forward. Uh, Guys, there's so much more to say on each one of these, but we don't have the time. I'm going to move forward again, and I want you to remember this. I'm not just talking, I am not, I'm not here to talk to you about social issues. I'm here to talk to you right now about um, spiritual warfare, sacrificial love, which will be our application, and how we must engage with those things if we want to be ready for the coming revival and reformation that is upon us. Are you with me? Okay, we're getting close, okay? Number four, in 1790 till the mid-1800s, you have the Second Great Awakening. The prominent leader is Charles Finney. Um, (laughs) This is so funny. Uh, I mean, it's just so narrow, but but, but I'm I'm making my point, I hope. Um, 1840s is when they would say kind of that the revival element died out, but Reformation was in full swing. 1861, a man was elected president. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Two years later, in 63, the Emancipation Proclamation. Two years after that, 1865, the abolishment of American slavery and the 13th Amendment. Finney was 17 years Lincoln's senior, and they wrote back and forth letters From what I can tell in my limited research, they wrote back and forth in letters until Finney, about slavery, until Finney was convinced that Lincoln was resolved to abolish slavery, and then Finney stopped writing. Why, why, why were, why? Why were the great revivalists that we look, I'm just showing us a few. Why were they so concerned? Why don't we ever talk about it? Why were they so concerned with these things? Because God's concerned with these things. I love 
revival meetings. I love wild worship. I love rolling around on the floor under the spirit and presence of God. I, I'm not, I love that. I really, I do. I, bring me to it. Like I need it to refresh my soul. But it must move from there to the transformation of our cities and nations or we do not accomplish the desire of King Jesus in our world. Nineteen oh six, you have the Azusa Street revival. It lasted debatably somewhere between seven and nine years, um, and I, I think it was cut short. It's too bad because even in seven to nine years, the impact of the Azusa Street revival—if you trail it uh, globally—is absolutely wild. <laughs> it is wild, and, and I realize in nineteen hundreds, the world's becoming more globalized, so the ability for it to reach beyond is is that but this massively shaped western christianity it was ignited through the welsh revival with oral roberts okay but the guy that god rose up to lead the 1960s street revival william seymour (laughs) william seymour the one-eyed black son of a freed slave Interesting choice at that time in American history. 1906 also happened to be the height of the Jim Crow laws. Separate but equal. Of course, we know it wasn't quite equal. Some wild stuff happened. You can do the research as to why I think it didn't last quite so long. And yet... In seven to nine years, the Azusa Street Revival touched the world. They said of the Azusa Street Revival, nowhere like it do we see the color line washed away in the blood of Jesus. The Azusa Street Revival was known because it touched equally. Blacks, Asians, whites, Latinos, Native Americans, immigrants, the rich, the poor, the illiterate, the educated, and the world was impacted dramatically because of this. I I, I want you guys to know this afternoon that I believe that it is the work of the enemy to divide the church because of what God's about to pour out. He wants us united. I believe we are truly on the edge of a great outpouring of God. And to be honest, you guys, I'm, I'm, I am disturbed by how offended and divided we can be within the church. This isn't a message just for hope. By no means. My hope is that you are willing to take this and at least bring it to God and go, where? Where where are the areas in me, God, that you want to transform? You might be Peter, because Peter is a hero in every sense of the word, still in need of transformation throughout his life. True, the foundation, the 
the corner apostle. And yet not beyond his need for continued transformation. Here's my question to you. I'm going to get to my story of application. We'll be done, okay? We're almost... Are you guys okay? I know I always go late. It's like my curse and my MO. But we're almost done. I use this as an example because in 2020, it's been so wildly highlighted across our nation. And to avoid it within the church, I don't know all the answers. By no means. But to avoid it in the church, I, I, I think it hurts the heart of God. We've got, to, we've got to begin to engage, and some of us are. I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers by any means. I'm not. But we've got to engage as a church and encourage the other bodies around us to engage. And, and it's not just this issue. Like I said, it could be the destruction of our children. It could be the rise and fall of governments and of nations. It could be so many things that God is concerned with and that there are spiritual battles around. My question for... Uh, it, it literally... Let me. I, I wrote down a couple of examples here. Um, it could be political. It could be old versus young or male versus female. It could be Korean versus Japanese. Or a thousand other things, big or small. What is it that is dividing us as the body of Christ? And how do we press into Jesus to say our desire is that we would fulfill the prayer of Jesus before going to the cross? That he would make us God, make us one. So that perfectly one. So that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that he loves them. This is not an optional, let's unify or let's love one another, but if it's hard, forget it. No! That unto the world will know that Jesus was sent by God and that God loves the world. It is essential. Absolutely essential. My question for us is what divides us from others and hinders our ability to love? Jesus' desire is that we would be one. I'm going to give you an application story. And then I'm going to pray for us. Um, okay, so I, I don't talk... I'm going to... I'm going to share with you about an outreach I went on to um, Sudan 10 years ago. And I, I don't normally talk about this outreach. I realized this year I, I didn't talk about it because it was quite traumatic in my life. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so 10 years ago I took a small team to what's now South Sudan. At the time it was just Sudan. Um, we were in the South teaching the Bible to um, the black South of Sudan. The Arab North was devastating it. Um, and um, primarily Muslim North, primarily Christian South. And um, so we're there teaching pastors. Never, ever. I've been all over Africa and all over the world. I've been in North Korea. Never, ever, ever have I seen a place with so little as South Sudan. Um, life was so cheap. People would just die. I was preaching funerals and 
um, literally didn't see a single paved road in the entire country. Um, it wasn't just no internet, there was no electricity. Uh, and then while we were there, um, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, came through our village. So that Joseph Coney, some of you guys probably heard, he was made famous a number of years back on social media to try and end his child's uh, soldier stuff. And um, his guys, he started the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army is what he called it. And there was a joint military venture from Congo and Sudan and Uganda to route the LRA. And they routed them right through our village. And of course, they're a, a guerrilla militant group, so they're not in uniforms or anything. So nobody knows who they are because they've just been dispersed in the African plains, literally. And, um, and so I remember, you know, one morning our cook was gone and it turned out that, you know, a soldier of the LRA uh, hacked her brother to death with a machete about a mile away. And um, a couple nights, I've never felt a blanket of fear like that. It, it was oppressive. I've never, I've never known anything like that. It was a spirit of fear. It's not like, no, no, I choose to not be afraid. There was a, it, it was a real, and it made people do weird things. Um, I remember one night, <laughs> the side of our mud hut that we were living in was smashed open in the middle of the night. And I curled up in a, I'm pretty good under most stressful situations. I curled up in a ball and under my mosquito net. I couldn't move. I was just frozen. I was completely confident that Joseph Coney himself had smashed through my house and was about to hack me to death with a machete. Turns out a mango tree broke and the branch smashed half of our house. Which is also dangerous, but not quite on the same level. Um, and uh, and I, I knew fear while I was there. And I... Um, I'd never been hungry. It was the most difficult outreach of my life. I, I bought a live goose for $20, killed it with a pocket knife, cooked it over an open fire. I was literally that hungry. And you couldn't, there was no escape. There was no McDonald's. There was nothing. Um, and people are starving all around us, literally. We ran into a girl, she's 10 years old, who was taking care of her two-year-old brother because both of her parents had died of AIDS. Because both of her parents had died of, their parents had died of AIDS, they were ostracized from the village. So now you've got a 10-year-old girl taking care of her two-year-old brother just in the dirt. And we ran across them and the baby was really sick. And so we're, they're like, you know, he, there's something really wrong. We need to take him to the clinic. We took him, and they pretty much said, they said, he's got serious malaria. Uh, we don't think he's going to make it. His one hope would be that we could give him blood because malaria is a, um, like a, it's like a bacteria. It like gets in your blood, and then your liver can't process it after a while. And so that's, yeah, anyways, um, so they could take out the dirty blood and give him new blood and then treat the malaria, and hopefully that would help. Well, it turned out I was on a team of four, and one of the girls had the same blood. So I, like, literally I was like, I have to go teach these pastors. You, you know, can give blood here, but you know, we made sure everything was safe. And um, So she gave blood to this two-year-old boy, but when the people at the clinic realized you know, that what had happened to his parents, they tested him and he had AIDS. His name was Isaiah. I forgot it. I talked to counselors, they were like, oh yeah, that's trauma. 
you block it out. And I'm like, that's so weird. I had to write a teammate and say, I don't want to forget anymore. What was his name? Earlier this year, I was on a Zoom Bible study. We were talking about sacrificial love. And one of our leaders in Kona on Zoom restructured it to say, hey, we, we've become anesthetized, whatever, whatever that word, numb to this term, sacrificial love. He said, I want to restructure it for you. What is sacrificial love? It is the willful engagement in painful love, the willful engagement in loving someone when you know it will be pain. It will be painful. You will hurt if you choose it. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He wasn't sitting in the garden hoping, no, no, just numb me out for the next 24 hours. It was the willful engagement in painful love. While he was teaching this, this year, a number of months ago, I am, it was weird. I um, was taken back in my mind to what I'm sharing with you about Isaiah. I just blocked it out. And, um, and God brought it back earlier this year. And, uh, and then since then, it showed me this is a key for the time that you're in. And, um, and here, here's what I'll, I'll share with you. This is, um, I don't like walk around with a lot of regrets in my life, thankfully. But this would be one thing I look at and regret. Um, in Sudan, all that stuff is happening that I'm telling you about. Now we have this 10-year-old girl and 2-year-old boy. And we find out that they're ostracized. They have nowhere to go. And that the 2-year-old, who's now recovering from malaria, has AIDS. And no treatment around. He did nothing wrong. And so... You know, we talked at the YWAM base, and they said, yeah, we don't know what else to do. We'll just bring them onto the base. Because they have nowhere to go. And, and this is the part I look back on and, and wish I could do different. I made a decision to avoid Isaiah. Because I was convinced that he was going to die, and I couldn't handle that. And I was right. Two months later, I got a message and went back three weeks after maybe they got there, two, three weeks after and to the base. And maybe five weeks after that, I got an email from the base leaders. They said, hey, Isaiah passed on. We just wanted you to know. And I felt very little. Um, but while I was in this Bible study on Zoom earlier this year, a weird thing happened to me. Not only was I confronted with the whole thing, it was like my memory overtook my reality and I couldn't focus on the Bible study or anything. It was like I was drawn to 10 years ago when this thing happened. And, um, and the bottom line was that I, uh, I, was, I was taken back to that time and then I had a very weird experience. So, I do a bit of travel, and I teach, and I do missions and stuff, and, and I have three little kids, almost four, 
And something very strange happened, something I can't explain well when I would travel and teach, especially when my kids were like zero to six months old. When I would travel, I, there, sometimes I would be struck with these strange moments where I deeply missed my kids. And, um, and I know it sounds a little strange, but what I wanted to do in those moments is just hold them and sniff them. <laughs> like, I don't, I can't explain it to you, but it was like, and it, then it's, and it was unconsolable while I was traveling. I'd get frustrated or angry even. I'd have to distract myself or worship or do something because I, otherwise I'd go down this dark tunnel of like, what the heck am I doing with my life? I hate missions. I hate like, I, I, why am I away from my family? This is the worst thing I've ever done. I'm a bad dad. Like this whole, it would just, so I would distract myself. I've never had that sense for anyone else ever, only for my three kids. Um, until this year when I'm on Zoom and Isaiah's face, I remember him. And I remember all I wanted to do in that moment was just grab, just squeeze him, just sniff his beautiful little head. And I, and I can't. I remember I went down into my office in, on my garage and... Um, I got on my knees in my office and I just started crying and I just said, God, never, never again. I was so ashamed. I was like, I can't believe that I had two or three weeks to be with him on that base. He's right there. And I never even went to see him. What's the matter with me? I was like, why didn't I go pray for him? Why didn't I just go hold him and tell him everything was going to be okay every day? I just avoided him because I couldn't deal with what would happen to me if he died. And so I chose to protect myself and not engage in painful love. And I got on my knees in my office and I said, God, never again. Don't ever let me do that again. Whatever it looks like, however this is going to go, I want to engage. And that has led me to all kinds of things, to sharing messages people don't want to hear, to challenging people to things that they don't want to do, and to myself engaging in things that have not been easy. My wife and I stepped into the foster care system this year for the first time and were placed with a very difficult little boy, almost three years old, with a lot of issues. And it was only hard. It was only hard. He never, he never responded to his name in three months that we had him. It was not glory. It was awful. <laughs> It was gloriously awful. Um, I just, I just want to be done protecting myself. I want to, I want to engage in painful love. Because in that place, 
there's a part of the heart of God I don't think we will ever experience without going there. And my challenge to you, Hope Church, I'm going to pray and be done. I know I've gone way too late. But I, I, I want to challenge you guys as an absolutely incredible, diverse, God-loving church. 2021, may it be the year that you engage in painful love like never before. That you choose it like never before. I promise you, I promise it'll be hard, but I promise you if you do it for the sake of the kingdom of God, you will draw near to Jesus also like you've never known. And, and to actually ask God, I challenge you, ask God, spend 30 minutes with your spouse or by yourself, God, how do I engage in painful love in 2021? Maybe it starts with you coming to 6 a.m. prayer with Pastor Q. That's painful. And it's an act of love toward God. <laughs> Maybe you engage financially more painfully than you ever have at a kingdom thing that burns in your heart. Maybe you talk with people like Lom and Ann or Danny and Irene about adoption and foster care. Maybe you host an event with people of different colors and talk about real life. Listen. Love them. I know it's a little off the point, but I have made dear friends in the last two years, people of color. Because I just decided I'm going to go in and I know I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to say the wrong thing because I just don't see everything. I don't understand. But I'm not going to give up, even when I'm like so awkward. And I have dear friends who see the world different than I do. And I need what they see. But I can only know that now that I'm on the other side of sitting through those awkward situations. I'm going to pray for us, but I'm asking you to actually spend 30 minutes, whether it's by yourself or with your spouse or with your family, and say, God, in 2021, you've got days left. But in 2021, how do you want me, big or small, to engage in painful love in 2021? Not some masochistic form of like, I'm going to do it because it hurts. No, not that. Engage in painful love. Say, I jo- Jesus, I want to join you. I'll tell you guys this. There's, there's a song we're not going to, but the words of it have touched me for years. It says, God, I've said I want to love you, follow you. I don't remember the exact words, but he says, but I've forgotten, what you, I've forgotten where to find you. I've forgotten what you look like. And then it says, you're among the poor. You're close to the broken. The least of these. It's where you are. May 2021 be the year that you give comfortable Christianity the bird and just be like, no, I'm going to do things that hurt. 
Because I want Jesus that much. And I trust with everything in me that I will draw near to him. 2021 is the year for that. 2021 is the year for it, you guys. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for this house. I want to thank you for its leaders. I want to thank you for the people that continue to come through a year that's been filled with trials. God, I ask that you would walk with us. God, I ask that you would be near to each one and that you would place in the hearts of each person, adult and child alike, that you would place in their hearts, come this invitation to come and engage with me in this area. I'll show you myself. I'll draw you into my heart as you engage with me in sacrificial love. Painful love in Christ-like love. Lord, we believe your word. We believe your word in Hebrews 12. It says, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. We believe your word that says there's no greater love than this, that you lay down your life for your brothers. Lord, we want to live out that kind of love in every category of our lives. So Lord, I ask your blessing. I ask that 2021 would be filled with the glories of nearness to Jesus. Filled with the hope and the faith that comes when we're near to you. When we're walking in radical, reckless obedience to you, Holy Spirit. Bless Hope Church as they step into 2021. I ask in Jesus' name.